Well, if we haven't met before, uh, my name is Gareth, one of the pastors here at Common Ground Durbanville, uh, and I just want to quickly orient us uh, as we get back into the book of Mark. Uh, we're going to be back in the book of Mark for the next four weeks, and then we're going to be dipping in and out of it for the rest of the year. Uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know that last year we were journeying through the book of Mark. Uh, we worked from uh, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, through to halfway through chapter 8, which is where we started off this morning. Uh, uh, over Holy Week and Easter two, two weeks ago, uh, we jumped to the end of the book and we worked our way through chapters 14 through 16, through the last few hours of Jesus' life, uh, through his death and resurrection. Uh, and now over the remainder of the year, we're going to kind of close that gap and finish off from the middle of chapter chapter 8 to chapter 14, going in and out of it, as I say. Now, in terms of the book of Mark and Mark's intention in writing this account of Jesus' life, well, that's exactly what it is. It's an account of the life, uh, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. It's, in fact, the earliest account of Jesus' life that we have in terms of being written down first. Uh, and his account focuses primarily on the life and actions of Jesus. Uh, he doesn't actually have a lot to say about what Jesus taught. Uh, it's very focused, very action-oriented on what Jesus did. You've got to read some of the other accounts of Jesus' life uh, to really find out the kind of things that Jesus taught. And basically, this account of Mark is written to answer two big questions. Who is this man and what is he doing? Who is Jesus and what has he done? And he actually starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, with a thesis statement. Uh, and everything else he writes is building up the case for the thesis that he's made. He starts off the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, God's chosen king to rescue his people. The good news, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And I think the reason he puts this thesis up front is because of how radical and, and to be quite honest, confusing the story of Jesus' life would be the first time you're reading it. We don't react that way. We've heard it before. But the first time you're reading it, if you were reading it with absolutely no context, I think it would be incredibly uh, radical and confusing without this thesis up front. Because Jesus' life is radical and strange. Just calling people to give up their livelihoods and start journeying around with him as he does whatever it is he's going to do. And driving out demonic spirits, healing leprosy, telling a paralyzed man his sins are forgiven. And that guy subsequently gets up and walks out the building. Hanging out with all the wrong kinds of people that a spiritual leader is supposed to hang out with clashes with the spiritual leaders constantly, doesn't follow the rules that they've made up to the point that they say he's in league with the devil, draws huge crowds, then leaves them behind, sleeps in a boat when his uh, experienced fishermen followers who sailed on this lake all the time are, are terrified that the storm they found themselves in is going to capsize the, capsize the boat and they're going to be drowned. He wakes up and he calms the storm and the waves with a single word. Raises a dead girl back to life. Multiplies a small amount of food so that it feeds thousands, not once but twice. Walks on water. It's no wonder that Mark tells us up front, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, where we left off the story at the end of last year is that Jesus and his followers are up uh, northern Israel, a place called Caesarea Philippi, and the penny has finally dropped for them. 
When Jesus calmed the storm that they thought was going to drown them, they were terrified and they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And when he walked out on water far from the shore, walking on the water to where the boat was, they were amazed and they didn't understand. But when we ended off last year, the penny had at last dropped. Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the promised Savior, the promised rescuer, the one who will free God's people from oppression and usher in God's reign, which leads directly into our text this morning. And and I kind of feel like you get the sense from Jesus of kind of like, finally, finally, you're getting it. Finally, we can move on to the next phase. First, you had to figure out who I am. Now I'm going to tell you what I am here to do. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. If you were with us for Easter, either online or in our venue, you might remember us speaking about this strange phrase, Son of Man. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. It's Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. And that might be because it's actually a slightly enigmatic phrase. It's slightly mysterious. Because on the one hand, Son of Man means a human being or the human being. It's not until Jesus says to the high priest at his trial, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven that what some suspected was confirmed that he's been alluding to a prophecy in Daniel all along. By calling himself the son of man, he hasn't meant the human being. Rather, he's meant that human-type figure that Daniel sees in a vision, the one who is led into the presence of God himself and given authority and glory and sovereign power and all the nations worship him, and he's given an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. Basically, given the things that belong to God himself and God alone. That's why when Jesus makes clear, that's what he's been saying. The high priest rips his robe. We we saw that on Easter and says, blasphemy. Right now, that's still in the future. Right now, it's still enigmatic. And what he says next doesn't clear things up at all for his disciples. I mean, just imagine you're there for a second, right? Jesus has been calling himself the son of man and you know Daniel's prophecy because you've been taught the Bible and you've seen the things he's done and Peter's just blurted out what you've come to realize. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior. Maybe you're starting to wonder, could could it be? Should, Should I be joining these dots? But then what Jesus says next shatters your world. See, the son of man in Daniel is going to be given honor and glory and power. The son of man standing in front of you says he will be rejected and suffer, and die, and rise again, if your mind can even get that far. See, between you and me this morning, Jesus is not just going to fulfill Daniel's vision, and be lifted up in glory, and be, be given dominion, and power, and authority. He's also going to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant, the one who takes on the pain, and the suffering, and the sin of his people who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace would be laid upon him. And he's going to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy that God would look down and see that there was no one to intervene, no one to save humanity from themselves, so he would roll up his sleeves himself and come down and do the job that they are incapable of doing, and many other prophecies. 
Those are all dots that the disciples are only going to be able to join much later, looking back on what has transpired. Right now, what Jesus says shocks them. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. Given the predominant Jewish understanding of what God rescuing his people through his Messiah would look like, and if there's any joining of the dots at all with Jesus calling himself the Son of Man, what happens next actually makes complete sense. Peter rebukes Jesus. Now, at least he has the tact, maybe the EQ to kind of take him aside to do it. I mean, that's actually quite surprising, right, given what we know of Peter's personality, that he had the tact to kind of pull Jesus to one side. We don't obviously know exactly how it transpired, but I have a kind of picture in my head. Peter's just declared Jesus is the Messiah. He's thinking according to the common belief of his day, that means Jesus is the one sent by God to rescue his people, the Jews, from oppression by their enemies, the Romans. That their biggest problem is foreign dictatorial rule, and Jesus will set that right. It looks something similar to what happened 160 years prior when the Jewish nation got their independence from Syria, violent revolution and war, just in a much bigger and more climactic and final scale. And he doesn't see the bigger picture at all. That Jesus is sent by God. In fact, God coming himself to rescue his people, not Israel, but all humanity, from oppression to our true enemy, not Rome or any other dictatorial government, but Satan, sin, and death. That the biggest problem is not that we are ruled by other people, but that we are alienated from God, and Jesus is yet to set that right. That scripture that Colin read earlier from Hosea chapter 2, I will call the people who are not my people, my people. That's what that's about. So given Peter's understanding when Jesus said he would suffer and be rejected and killed and rise again, that can't possibly happen. That's incompatible with what being the Messiah is, at least to his understanding. Following Jesus can't mean going to that destination. Jesus must be burnt out, depressed, losing the plot, I'll take him aside. I don't want to embarrass him in front of the other guys. I don't want him to look weak. So I'll kind of pull him aside, right? Which didn't go so well for Peter as we read. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And here's the thing. Whereas Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him, you know, kind of maybe a little bit away from the campfire, maybe in the shadows, we're told that Jesus turns back and looks at the disciples, before he says this, so that everyone is aware of this moment. Now, Jesus is not saying that Peter is demon-possessed or Satan-possessed. Peter doesn't have a competing loyalty as if he's not truly following Jesus. He has a different ideology. Let me say that again. Peter doesn't have a different loyalty. He has a different ideology. An ideology of loyalty to God through nationalism, exclusion of those who historically have not known God, violent rebellion against them, separation from them. It's not a competing loyalty. He's loyal to God. He's loyal to Jesus. But his ideology is radically opposed to Jesus's. Jesus's ideology of radical selfless love towards those who don't know God, acceptance of anyone who would follow him despite whatever they've done in the past didn't have a competing loyalty, he had a competing ideology. We're going to come back to that in a moment. To those of you who are maybe new to church or 
maybe have never made a decision to actually follow Jesus, I could understand why Jesus might confuse you and might not seem to make sense. You're in good company. His closest mates couldn't make sense of it for a long time. It's that wild. It's that crazy. While our modern sensibilities might not endorse Peter's strategy, at least it kind of makes logical sense, right? We who have historically worshipped God can't do so properly because we have a foreign dictatorial government that rules over us, uh, that's oppressing us. We should revolt, okay? It seems logically coherent, even if we might take issue with the violence intended. Far more logical than let the enemies of God kill me as the way of God's victory. But God's way is radically different to our ways. And in particular, they are radically more inclusive, radically more loving, radically more generous. It seems crazy. But I would invite you to look a little closer. See if maybe God is not moving in your heart so that it makes a little more sense. And so that you realize that that inclusive, loving generosity is extended towards you and is inviting you in. Now, having cleared the air, so to speak, Jesus now invites his disciples, invites all who would follow him, including us today, into a very specific kind of following, a following that involves two steps. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. If you want what I'm offering, this is what it looks like to get it. If you want to follow me into God's inclusive, radical, loving generosity, be my disciple. Here's what it looks like. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Let's look at that in a little more detail. Firstly, deny yourself. He's not simply saying deny yourself things, although that might be part of it along the way. But fundamentally, he's saying deny yourself. It's to remove yourself as the center of your world. It's a fundamental reorientation of life. Theologian R.T. Franz says, what Jesus calls for here is this a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination and a call to join the march to the place of execution follows appropriately from this. Denying your individual agenda, your social agenda, your national agenda, your religious agenda, your ideological agenda. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, becoming his disciple, following him into his grace and love means putting him front and center in your life, making his priorities your priorities. But just the thing, this doesn't just speak to those who are not yet followers of Jesus. Remember Peter he was following Jesus. He didn't have a competing loyalty. But man, did he have a competing ideology. Got me thinking. What are some of our competing ideologies? What are the dominant competing ideologies of the northern suburbs? Maybe particularly for those who don't follow Jesus, but, but maybe that tempts those of us who do. And not just the northern suburbs. I mean, we're not that unique. Uh, Cape Town, South Africa, probably most of the world. And I want to look at two that I think are particularly dominant. They're not the only ones, but two of the most dominant ones. Success and comfort. Not the only competing ideologies, but I think these are two of the biggies. Success. I'm loyal to Jesus, but my ideology is success. 
My business must be successful. My career must be successful. My family must be successful. My kids must be successful. And to the extent that they are not, I'm going to cover it up so that at least it appears that they are. And so my time and my energy is focused on those things. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are good things to spend some of your focus on. But when your ideology is success, your time and your energy is focused on them for myself, for my success, or to look like I am successful. And your daily decision-making processes become dominated by that desire for that success. Will I make decisions in my career that honor God at the risk of my success? I've told you this embarrassing story before, so apologies for those of you who've heard it. But um, 2009, uh, Indira was either pregnant with Dominic or had just been born. I can't quite remember. She wasn't working um, my business had taken a big dip after 2008, lost clients that went out of business and, and uh, desperately looking for work. Second child, just a busy arriving. And so I was advertising online, uh, willing to do any kind of online administration, anything really. And I got approached by a company that wanted me to handle detailed CVs, bookings with clients, itineraries for flights, accommodation, car rental for their business spread across Europe, Okay. If you've got your own business, what you just heard is you're getting paid in euros, right? Okay, you know what that means. Oh, and by the way, uh, we book hardcore porn. Okay, but don't worry, you don't have to look at any of it if you don't want to. Okay, just to be clear, they approached me based on my advertising. I did not approach them. Just going to put that out there. Now, saying no to that might seem like a silly example. It actually wasn't that silly at the time because they were paying euros and Indira wasn't working and we had two small kids, and I desperately needed the work. But even if that is a silly example, say no to that. We all make calls, maybe less dramatic, but we make calls all the time that either honor God or honor our desire for success. How much energy I give to my relationship with God versus how much energy I give to my success, or to advancing the kingdom of God versus my own success. Who I will, at the very least, overlook maybe even step on, do harm to for my success, whether that's undermining a work colleague, stealing their ideas, trying to bankrupt a competitor, or simply not having the time to love and serve somebody God has put in my path because I'm too busy loving and serving myself through success. But Gareth, isn't that the natural way of things? Isn't that how the free market economy works? Climb to the top, stepping on others if necessary before they step on you, even if that stepping is a bit more subtle, just not making time for those God puts in your path rather than actual backstabbing. Isn't that how things work? Yes, it is. That's how much of capitalism and the free market and the Western world works. Fortunately, not all of it, because God's grace is still at work. But that is much of the ideology of the world. Here's the thing, though. It's not the ideology of Jesus. I think Jesus would say to that, get behind me, Satan. What about comfort? Comfort can be super related to success. Sometimes success is the means to comfort. Being able to do what I want or not being made to feel uncomfortable. My time and my energy is focused on what brings me comfort, not what serves others, not what leads to the forward progress of the gospel. And so once again, your daily decision-making processes are dominated by this ideology. Netflix versus time with God. Sunday church versus hiking or mountain biking or just sleeping in late. I don't know what your thing is. 
giving energy to love and encourage people in life group versus simply pitching up every week, always looking to unload your problems and make yourself the center of attention. Or not pitching because loving and encouraging others takes energy and it's more comfortable just to send a WhatsApp and bail almost every single week. Giving as God has laid on your heart versus using that money that for your latest subscription service, latest gadget, latest restaurant. By the way, just to echo what was said in that video, uh, in the midst of our Folder City vision, we just want to release with joy those of you who've lost jobs or, or in financial difficulty. And we just want to say to you, this might not be your time to get involved, if that's you. And if you are needing help or support, please move towards us. Let us know so that we can stand with you and your family. But we have to decide. I'm loyal to Jesus, but what is my ideology? And actually, ultimately, to be truly loyal to Jesus, we have to accept his ideology. There's this moment right now for Peter. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is a crux moment. This is a crucial moment. No pun intended, but it's a cross-crux moment. I'm loyal to Jesus, but at this point, my ideology conflicts so strongly that in order to remain loyal to Jesus, that ideology has to shift. Following him means denying ourselves, denying what we naturally lean towards and pursue and what culture and society says we should lean towards and pursue and rather lean towards and pursue the things Jesus wants us to. Which one of those is your competing ideology? It may very well be a combination of both. For myself, it's a combination that probably leans a little more towards the comfort side. I have to work at denying myself comfort in order to properly follow Jesus. You have to figure out what it is for yourself. Maybe it's something else entirely, and then you have to deny that. Secondly, take up your cross and follow Jesus. You know, we sometimes say things like, uh, this is my cross, or this is my cross to bear. Or maybe I've dated myself because we don't say that anymore, but at least we used to, right? I have this terrible boss, but that's my cross to bear. I have this recurring back pain, but it's my cross to bear. Success has made managing all my different income streams so hard, but that's my cross to bear. But that's not what Jesus is saying. A cross to bear was not a metaphor for something difficult or painful or hard or challenging. In his time, it was not a metaphor. It meant picking up a cross beam and carrying it to the place where you would be tortured to death. There's no ambiguity here. Jesus is saying, follow me to death. The German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned by the Nazis and was executed just days before the end of the Second World War, literally followed Jesus to death. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. At least 10 of the 12 guys that Jesus was speaking to were martyred. I say at least because there's some contradiction in the historical record as to whether Matthew was martyred or not. So either 10 or 11 of the 12 were martyred and the 12th one was just imprisoned on an island for a really long time. Now, we don't currently face the death sentence for proclaiming the name of Jesus and holding to his words and teaching, at least not in South Africa, but the costs of following him are going up. But let me tell you quickly what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, seek persecution. He's not saying, stir up strife and ruffle some feathers. Be a jerk towards those who don't believe the things of Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying, if it's not hard, it's not God. He's not saying that. 
There are tons of blessings and gifts and grace and good times that we have as children of God. He also doesn't have in mind all hardships. There are some hardships that happen to everyone, like ultimately sickness and death, and we're all very aware of that right now. There are some hardships that are brought about by our own sin and sometimes stupidity. We're not meant to intentionally bring hardship into our lives because we think it's godly. He's not talking about just any hardship we might face. He's talking about the hardships we face as a result of denying ourselves, identifying with Jesus, and being about his mission in this world. Right now, we don't face the death sentence, but let me show you what it does look like. It might look like saying no to that relationship with that person because even though you want it, God is saying, no, my child, that's not what I have for you. It looks like being generous with your finances. It looks like telling people what you really believe when you're asked with gentleness and respect. It's going to possibly look like being mocked for your narrow-mindedness despite the gentleness and respect with which you answered. It's going to possibly look like being called a bigot. It's going to possibly look like being called an evil doer. More and more following Jesus could look like being called an evil doer because those in the world who don't love and serve and follow Jesus, many of them hold values that are so fundamentally opposed to the values we hold, those of us who are followers of Jesus, that those values look evil. Remember what the religious leader said? He's in league with the devil. It doesn't matter how much love and respect and generosity we have towards those who don't follow Jesus, they will see some of our views as fundamentally evil. I'm thinking right now in terms of sexuality and gender and various areas like that. So all of this raises a massive question. Why? Why would you want to follow Jesus? Right? You have to deny yourself. You have to deny the dominant ideology that puts you at the center, that puts your success or your comfort or one of a million other things that revolve around you at the center and learn to do things Jesus' way, giving, serving, loving sacrificially at the cost of yourself. You have to follow Jesus through, at the very least, misunderstanding, mocking, being called wrong, being called an evildoer by the dominant culture. Perhaps one day it might mean death again as it does in other parts of the world. Why would you want to follow Jesus? Well, let's look at what Jesus says next. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Why would you want to follow Jesus? There's actually a lot of answers. On Easter Sunday, we saw that you should follow Jesus because he's the risen king of the world who rules and reigns over all. And to not follow him would be to put yourself on the wrong side of the king of the universe. We often speak of the reality that you should follow Jesus because doing so means your sins are forgiven and you're adopted into God's family. But right here, Jesus gives us a different reason. You should follow Jesus because it's worth it. Because it's worth it. And I love how he shows it to us here because it makes so much sense to my accountant's brain. My apologies in advance for those of you who hated accounting in school for what I'm about to do to you. 
Okay. Can we put up that next slide? There we go. My apologies. <laughs> if you don't follow Jesus, if you follow an ideology of success or comfort or anything else that puts you in the center, what can you gain? What goes in the debit column of the ledger? Apologies, guys. I couldn't help myself. Well, potentially the world, right? Potentially you could be the most successful person of all time. How lucky it is we can talk about, but potentially. That's the maximum gain, the maximum that can go in the debit column. The most successful person in the world, the wealthiest person in the world, the most comfortable life in the world. Sounds good, right? But what do you lose? What's the liability? What's in the credit column? Your soul for eternity. That equation makes me incredibly uncomfortable because it's not balanced. An accounting equation is supposed to be balanced. That's not balanced. It is so incredibly unbalanced. You lose infinitely more than you could ever gain. Make the logical decision. Now, you might be thinking, okay, what if, if that's the equation of not following Jesus... Let's flip that around. What's the equation of following Jesus? Okay? The liability, the loss is my own agenda. My success, my power, my comfort above all else. And the gain on the debit side is my soul. Reconciliation with God, adopted into his family, experiencing the spirit poured out in my heart, a guarantee of eternity with him. Again, there is only one logical conclusion. Follow Jesus. But I want to dig just a little bit deeper because I think there's something about the second equation that we don't understand properly. Because I think for some of us, our response is, okay, that makes sense, but it sucks. Logically, I can see what you're saying, Gareth. Eternity with God versus some happiness or success now. It's, it's a no-brainer. Logically, I should choose eternity with God, but I don't feel like it. Because you're asking me to give up my happiness and my freedom and my joy and my satisfaction. So while I logically agree with you, I'm going to say no for right now. And if that's you, please don't do that. Because I think if you're doing that, you've misunderstood this equation. What it means is that you think that happiness and joy and freedom and satisfaction are on the wrong side. Happiness and joy and freedom are not on the side of gaining the world. They are not on the side of living for yourself and your power and your success and your wealth and your comfort. That is the side of constant comparison, of constant doubt and worry and constant fear that what you have done so far is insufficient and can be taken away from you in a moment's notice. See, the gaining of your soul side is not just, oh, I get to be with Jesus when I go to heaven. Now, that would be enough. That is enough. But it's not all it is. The paradox of the cross as the way to victory is also the paradox of our lives. Denying your pursuit of success for yourself will bring you a validation in God's kingdom that truly satisfies your soul. Where success in the world is a never-ending cycle of grabbing and pursuing and holding on to and worrying if it is enough... Denying yourself and following Jesus leads to a deep satisfaction and a rest that comes from knowing Jesus' work is more than enough. Denying your pursuit of comfort for yourself will bring you a peace that truly satisfies your soul. Comfort in the world never provides true rest 
because you know that tomorrow brings another performance by which you will be judged. Denying yourself and following Jesus brings a comfort and a peace and a rest that Jesus took judgment for you. Denying yourself is worth it. What Jesus shows you is that denying him is never worth it. True life is worth more than the whole of the material universe put together. Knowing God as your father is worth it. Being transformed by Jesus into his likeness is worth it. Knowing you will physically rise from the dead and live forever is worth it. Knowing that what you do counts for eternity is worth it. Saying no to sin or to that job or that relationship is worth it. Giving up your time, your money, your energy for the expansion of the kingdom of God is worth it. Seeing people come to faith and being baptized and walking in newness of life is worth it. Getting rejected by friends and family for your beliefs about God and life and sexuality and money is worth it. Getting strung up on Facebook before the world as stupid, intolerant, bigoted, narrow-minded is worth it. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. It is worth it. Gaining the whole world and losing your soul, losing out on true life is not worth it. There's no other ideology that is worth it. And Jesus invites us, invites us into this reality. I want to close by looking at this invitation. Whoever wants to be my disciple, this invitation is personal. Whoever, and it's voluntary, wants. Whoever wants. It's personal, and it requires a personal response. It's voluntary. You have to decide you want it. It's not going to be forced on you. It's not going to happen involuntarily. It's not going to happen automatically. You have to ask for it. It doesn't happen because your friends or your family follow Jesus. It's personal. It does not happen because you come to church or are part of a church community. It's voluntary. You have to want it. You have to move towards it. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And let me tell you, it is worth it. It is worth it. What we're going to do right now is we're going to go back into a time of singing. The band can begin coming up. And, and as, we, as we sing, I want to invite you to respond in one of two ways. Respond around loyalty and respond around ideology. If you're here this morning in the venue or joining us online or even watching after the fact, and you haven't committed your loyalty to Jesus, you haven't decided to follow him. I want to invite you to do that right now. I want to invite you to invite him into your heart, invite him into your life to say, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up the cross and I'm going to follow Jesus. The vast majority of us have done that at some point. And so to the vast majority of us, I want to call you to respond around ideology. Where is your ideology inconsistent with being a disciple of Jesus? What is the competing ideology in your life? I'm sure it looks nothing like Peter's, but it might look like success. It might look like comfort. It might look like something else. As we sing, why don't you just take a moment to interrogate your soul, to ask yourself, where does my ideology not line up with being a disciple of Jesus? And then to say to Jesus, I deny myself. I pick up my cross. 
I follow you. This is how I'm going to make decisions differently going into this week and through the rest of my life. Won't you stand? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing together. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for your radical love and generosity that your ideology looked nothing like Peter's. Man, we, we can almost laugh at how badly he missed it, thinking it was violence, thinking it was exclusion, when it was the complete opposite. It was humility. It was laying down life. It was embrace. It was generosity. It was mercy. It was kindness. We can almost laugh at how foolish Peter was until we realize, man, sometimes I'm foolish too. Sometimes I live for things that yeah, they might gain me something of the world, but they come at the risk of my soul. They come at the risk ultimately of my loyalty to you. I want to pray for those that are feeling convicted. It'll be a conviction of grace, a conviction of changing of minds and turning of decisions back towards you in response to your grace and your mercy and your love. Not out of guilt, not out of shame. You've taken all of that away, but out of response to who you are. I want to pray for those who are not yet loyal to you, for those who have not yet made a decision to follow you. Won't you stir in their hearts? Won't you show them the truth of what we've spoken about this morning? Show them that it is truth for them so that they can respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.